Good morning. If you have your Bibles, take them out and turn them to Hebrews chapter 12. Also, if you, have, you don't have an outline, there's a message outline right outside the center doors, right at that ministry counter, right outside the door there. Pick one of those up. We're going to continue on our series, I Didn't Know. And this morning, I didn't know that we need each other, that we need each other. There's some things in our culture that work against us, uh, even with those words that we use, um, we need each other. We need each other. The first one is American individualism, the rugged individualism that was bred in our country in the early days where we say we're, we want to solve our own problems, that we don't need other people. We don't want to ask for help. If someone comes and asks you how you're doing, I say, fine. If they get in your face, say, really? Really, you're doing fine? You say, it's none of your business, right? It's that rugged individualism that we have in America today that says, that's allowed us to maybe behave unbiblically, biblically today, ungodly. It, it is never what God intended for us to do, never what he intended for us to be isolated and say, I can do this all by myself. The second reason I think it's wrapped up that we don't need each other is the fact of the lack of persecution that we have in our country. Uh, because there's no persecution, we think we can run this race solo. We think we can run this marathon and this journey in our life all by ourselves. And we kind of fit in Jesus in our life. We kind of fit in the body in our life. And as a result, we live ungodly. We don't live according to the Bible, according to that. They didn't have that problem in the first century, did they? They didn't have that problem at all. They had persecution. If you have your Bibles, they said, turn them to Hebrews chapter 12. We don't know the author of the book of uh, Hebrews, but we know he was writing to a group of people, to Jewish believers, where they had come to a place where they'd been heavily persecuted. They were experiencing persecution, and some of them were ready to give up. They were ready to give up, and the author is writing to them, say, don't give up. Don't give up on Jesus because he's superior to the angels, because he's superior to the law, because he's superior to the old religious practices and system that's going on. Don't give up on Jesus. Jesus is all you need. Jesus is your everything. He created us to run this race in community, to run this race together because we need each other is what he's saying. I remember playing sports when I was younger, and, and I remember if I made a mistake on the baseball field, made an error in the baseball field, that I would be out there and I'd beat myself up. Man, why did he do that? Made a bad mistake, and I'd be all over myself. And I remember at the end of the inning, as I was going to the dugout, someone would yell out in the stands, that's okay, Doug, you get him next time. And it made me feel better. And, and then I remember going to the plate, and people start cheering my name and screaming, come on, you can get a hit, you can get a hit. And, and it just made me refocus on the game. Motivated me. We need people, don't we? We really need people to help us during those times. If you ever run a race, and it's a long distance race, and during the middle of that race, you kind of get tired. And, but as you get closer to that finish line, you start hearing people cheer and scream, and, some, and somehow it kind of motivates you. And you didn't have the energy before, but somewhere you find that energy to finish that race strong, right? Right now we have the Olympics going on in, in, in Japan, and, and at this time the Olympians are not allowed to have the family members or friends there, or, or even they have the fans there. And there's some of them that express that it's really hard to get motivated. They, they get discouraged if they're not having a good day or something like that. And they did the encouragement of family and friends and the fans to encourage them because we need each other. That's what the writer of Hebrews was talking about when he says we need each other, right? Did you find Hebrews chapter 12? Okay, one person found it. That's good. They need help. Did you find Hebrews chapter 12? Yes, everybody's, what? I know I talk fast. Maybe I caught you. 
off guard. I want to share three things this morning, if you have your outline. Uh, these things that uh, we need to do together because we need each other. We need each other. And the first one, work to strengthen those who are weak. We're to work to strengthen those who are weak. Let's he read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. He says, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. The writer of Hebrews is challenging us based on everything he just said in the previous verses. And he says, therefore, do th three things. Number one, he says, strengthen your feeble arms. And he's not talking to an individual. Rather, he's talking to a group. And he says, strengthen your feeble arms and strengthen other people's feeble arms is what he's saying here in this passage. And the English Standard Version, I like how it translates in verse 12. It says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And I like that translation. I'm going to use part of that in a little bit. Have you ever had feeble arms or, or drooping hands? Have you ever had that? To, where you start a race out, you start at what you're doing, and you're, you're going strong, you're charging ahead. But as the race moves on, as you get in the middle of the race, all of a sudden your arms get heavier. And you have these uh, kind of uh, feeble arms and, and, and kind of drooping hands, and they get kind of tired. Well, tired arms makes us want to stop working. And we've all been there. Arms get tired in the middle of what we're doing. We just want to stop working. The English Standard Version uses the word lift. It says, lift up your drooping hands. The word lift comes a word that means encourage. And the word encourage means to, to infuse courage into someone is what he's saying. So we come alongside of someone with feeble arms or drooping hands, and we put our arm around them and says, hey, you can do this. I know you can do this. God is with you. I'm with you. And maybe we do that with a little note. We write them a little note and say something to them, you know, to encourage them. And some of you do that to me sometimes. Write me a little note, a little card to give me words of encouragement. It means all the, all the things in the world. It means to me. By just those little words of encouragement, some of the things I might have went through the day and I received that, it just brings a smile on my face to know that someone's thinking about me, praying for me. Or maybe just an encouragement of a word of prayer. Maybe you pray with them. Or you're saying, I've been praying for you. Maybe it's a scripture. You say, give them a passage of scripture or something like that. Or read a passage of scripture. Or maybe it's just your presence. You're right there with them. To infuse courage, the Bible says, so the feeble arms can be strengthened. You do it right at that time. The second thing he says, you need to strengthen your weak knees. The word strengthen means to bring your resources to bear. To bring your resources to bear to those who have weak knees. To help them as they deal with the challenges of life. To help strengthen them during that time. To come alongside of them is what it's saying. And, and, and there are probably a few of you this morning that have come in here with kind of feeble arms and weak knees. And you're going through some really tough things. You're going through some really challenging things in your life, some difficult things in your life, and you desperately need others to come around and encourage you. And there's some of you that come this morning and, and you're saying, man, God is so good. God is so great. And everything's going great in your life. And you say, he's just fantastic, right? God is. We need to get you two groups together because you need to encourage the other group because there might be a time in your life where you're not that fantastic and everything's not going so good. So we need to get those two groups together to encourage me because we need each other. We desperately need each other. The third thing he says here, we need to make level paths for your feet. Or it could be translated, make straight the paths for your feet. The author seems to say throughout this book, he's giving us the imagery of running the race. Running the race, they're kind of running a marathon. He says, make level paths or make straight, path, straight the paths 
could be referring to helping people stay in the lane. Uh, not get out of your lane, not get in somebody else's lane. First, you might trip them or they might trip you and you might get injured, might be some damage, he's saying, especially if they're weak already, if there's weakness already in their knees, especially there. So the purpose of staying in the straight pass or make level pass, first of all, so there's no further injury. But it seems like the emphasis, what he's talking up here, about here, but rather healed. He's talking about healing. That God made us in such a way with physical needs and emotional needs and kind of spiritual needs that sometimes they're so wrapped together that the person becomes overwhelmed in their life. And we become overwhelmed with all that that's going on. And I think of a young family, maybe with young children. And one of the parents has been diagnosed with cancer. And so they have the surgery. And they do the surgery and they come back and said this cancer spread throughout the body. So they decide to do a treatment plan to eradicate the cancer, but they don't know the end result. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that at that time? Because you have the feeble arms and the weak knees all at the same time. How do you deal with things like that? As a family, we need each other, right? And as a church family, we come around those persons in need, provide prayers and, and encouragement or whatever they need because we need each other. We need to be there for each other, right? We need to be there. There have been times in my life where, where I've said, I don't need anybody. I don't like being weak. I hate being weak. How about you? I don't like to say, I'm weak. I want to solve my own problems. I want to be the hero in my story. But that is so filled with pride when we say those types of things. When I think that or say that to myself, it's such prideful to say that, that I don't need anybody. I can do all this by myself. It's such pride if you say that or I say that. God brings things in our lives, and he allows these things to come into our lives to help us to understand that we desperately need him first and that we desperately need each other. We need each other. We need each other in this life. Do you hear me? Are you in agreement? Right? You're, you're on the same page, right? Are you with me on this? That we need each other. We really do. We need each other. We need each other to strengthen the knees, to lift up our hands, and to keep on the straight path so there could be healing is what he's saying here. The second thing he says, we need to reconcile with the body. We need to reconcile with the body. Verse 14. It says, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. He says, make every effort. Uh, he make every effort for two things. First of all, for peace, and then for holiness. Why, aren't those things kind of tied together and automatic? Aren't they automatic to have that? But he's saying it's not. It says, make every effort means to work hard and intentionally give yourself to that is what he's saying. We don't coast into either peace or holiness. We don't coast on those, but we, they only come with effort is what he's saying. You know, it, the grace of God is a gift from God. Uh, we don't do anything for God's grace, but it was never intended to wipe away effort and energy. Never was intended. It's just that our effort and energy, we can't take credit for it, nor does it buy us credit with God. But he says we come before God with the sense of make every effort, that we're striving, he says, first of all, for peace, that we all want peace. But there are a couple words in this passage that I, don't, that I struggle with that I don't really like. When it says, make every effort to, to make peace with all men or all people, right? Wouldn't it be so much easier if we didn't have all people or all men in there? Wouldn't it be so much easier? Well, how do you make every effort to live in peace? I know there have been people who have, have their feelings hurt sometimes at church. Not this church, but any church. They have their feelings hurt at church. And, 
they decide they just want to quit, that they, they just want to give up, or, or they get involved in a ministry, and, and maybe somebody says something to them that they don't like, or, or, or things aren't going the way they want, so they just want to quit, and they, they want to give up, and so they want to find another church. It seems like that happens in so many churches today, right? Around the country, and it happens. But let me ask you, where do you find that verse in the Bible? Is there a verse in the Bible like that? I understand if a church is not teaching the Word of God, or they're not obeying the Word of God, I understand maybe finding to the church. See, it says maybe make every effort to live in peace. And so relationships take effort. Relationships, they involve conflict. They always involve conflict, every relationship, because you have two imperfect people coming together. There's going to be conflict. And what happens is conflict is an opportunity for us to come together and draw closer together to pursue peace, to find common ground. That's what he's saying. That's where we find common ground. There's going to be conflict. If every, every time you have conflict, if you run from that relationship or run from a church, or every time that someone disagrees with you, if you run, you're never going to pursue peace. You're never going to have peace in your life. But he's telling us to pursue this peace. Don't run, but to find this peace. And you know how it works, don't you? You know how this, this peace works. It begins with simple words like, I'm sorry. I am sorry. You have ever said that? I am sorry. Are you married? You've yet said it many times. I'm sorry, right? To be able to say those words, but those, yet those words are softer words for better words. There are better words than I'm sorry. Because often we say with I'm sorry things like, uh, if I've hurt you, or if I've, what I said offended you, then I'm sorry. If we have to ever have to qualify our apologies with if, it's a softer words, really too soft. There's better words than, than that, right? See, it would be much better for us to say, what I did hurt you. I was wrong. Uh, please forgive me. I'm sorry. That's much stronger. Those are much stronger and powerful words. And to begin the process of intentional peace to say those words. Because when we say, when we come and say, I was wrong, I am sorry, please forgive me. I've taken ownership of what I've done, how I've hurt you, and now I've given it to you and given you control of that situation. Now you have the control to say, I will forgive you or I don't, right? Because I vote up to what I've done. I said, please forgive me. Not just if I did something, I admit that I did something wrong, and so I'm sorry, please forgive me what I've done. And you have, you're supposed to forgive, right? It may take time may take time to forgive, but you're eventually supposed to forgive and provide that peace that he's talking about. They have peace. To find that common ground where we come together and say, yes. Let me ask, are there people within this body, this body of crossroads right now, with whom you have tension? I don't, I don't know of any, but maybe there is. That you say, I don't want to see them here. I don't want to run into them. I don't want to talk to them. When we're out at the store, I want to run into them right there. And the Bible says, make every effort to live in peace. Don't run, but pursue peace. Find that peace. Go to that person and find the peace. Find the common ground where you can get past this. Then he says, make every effort to be holy. He said, without holiness, you will not see God. And I don't know about you, but that kind of scared. What does he mean by that? Without holiness, you will not see God. The holiness that he's talking about here in this passage of Scripture is the holiness we've been given as a gift from God. It's that we receive that the moment we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, it's called imputed righteousness or the given righteousness of Christ. And when I accepted Jesus Christ many years ago, uh, that moment as I accepted Christ, God took away my sins and he gave me Christ's righteousness. That's a great day, amen? 
And when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, whenever you did it, God took away your sins and he gave you Christ's righteousness. And that's a good day all day long, right? We can say, amen, that was a great day. What, what a great exchange. But it's all by God's grace, but it came at a very high price. The death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. That's what it cost. But now when God looks at me, God doesn't look at me and see my past. God doesn't look at me and see my sin. But he sees the righteousness of Jesus. That's what he sees. And that's called positional holiness is what I have in Christ. No matter what I do, my position in Christ, I have positional holiness. That's how God sees me. Through the blood of Jesus. So I have the righteousness of Jesus. But because we live in a broken world and because I have a sinful nature and we're called to live out our calling, I'm to live out this life, we're to live holy lives, that's called practical holiness, practical holiness. And that's the daily journey of me becoming more and more like Jesus. And the apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter four, verses one and two, which says we have to live that out. We have to live it out. We have to live out the life to be more like Christ, right? We're pursue holiness is what we're supposed to do. But we're supposed to pursue holiness together, together. We need each other. We're responsible for each other. We're responsible for each other growing. If someone is not walking right, we're to come alongside and restore them. Not to jump all over, but to restore them. Come alongside, put our arms around them, help them to walk right with Jesus. Because we're in this together. And we need each other, right? We need each other. In the Old Testament, there was a story in the book of, of Joshua. The children of Israel had been walking, wandering the wilderness uh, after God had delivered them from the bondage of Egypt. They've been wandering around in the wilderness and they, they crossed the Red Sea and they're right on the brink of going into the promised land. But because of their unbelief and their, their uh, disobedience to God, God allowed them to continue to wander in the wilderness for another 40 years. So now God brings them to the brink of the promised land a second time. And Joshua says to his people, he says in Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And the next day during the flood season, uh, God may open up the Jordan River and they walk through on dry ground. And they came across to the first fortified city, the, the city of Jericho, and God told them, march around the city. And then they blew the trumpets and the walls came down, right? Victory number one. So now they're headed for victory number two, and they come to this little town, Ai, and it's not big enough to send the whole military down there. So they send just a few guys down there, and what happens is 36 of their men get killed. And Joshua's all upset. He tears his clothes, and he kind of says to God, God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you do this to us? And God basically says, Joshua, you've got sin in the camp. Someone has committed this sin, and it's affecting everybody. See, here's, here's the thing, the principle. My sin will affect you. Your sin will affect me. And therefore, our challenge, the Bible says, is that we, we help pursue holiness together and to bring about peace. They're all in this together. And we look for everyone to have peace, everyone to have peace with God and peace with one another, that there's no sin. That's what we're looking Holiness, that's what God is calling us to. Holiness. We're in this together. We're not to condemn each other. We're not to cut them down and all this and pray for God's wrath. No, we're in this together to restore each other, to build and encourage one another so we might live holy lives together in peace. Don't you all want peace? The Bible says in peace that we come together. The third thing we need to do together, he says, fight for each other's spiritual success, to fight for it. He says in verses 15 and 16, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and then no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral 
or as godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. He is saying here that you're responsible for each other's spiritual success is what he's saying. He says, in this marathon, in this journey, in this race that we're running, let's help each other cross that line. We do this as a group. We do this as a family is what he's saying. And then he says three things, areas we are to work together. These three areas we are to work together. And the first one, he says, killing roots of bitterness. Roots of bitterness. He says, first of all, don't let the bitter root grow up within you. He's referring to a passage in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses was challenging the children of Israel. And he's saying, don't take on the gods of the Canaanites. Because if you take on those gods, it's going to create a bitter root to grow up within you. And I believe that he uses this metaphor that he's talking about this bitter root or planted in your heart. He says that if you don't uproot it and you can allow it to continue to grow within your heart, sooner or later it's going to overtake you, that bitter root. And we know people like that, don't we? They have that bitter root or the root of bitterness inside of their heart. They, something happened inside their, to their lives. Somebody did something. Something might have happened. They become angry. Instead of dealing with their anger, they allowed it to become bitterness. And they scowl at everyone. They're angry at everyone. They're constantly yelling. They're just in a bad mood, it seems like, all the time. We know people like that. It's like that, that vine in the woods that wraps itself around the tree and continues to tighten on that little tree till it takes the life from the tree. And what he's saying here, that bitter root, he says, he says that we kill that bitter root in our own lives and each other's lives to get rid of it. Get rid of the bitter root. Don't allow that to happen in your heart and mind. That's why you deal with sin right away. If someone offends you, you deal with it right away. You don't allow the root of bitterness to take hold. But you seek forgiveness. You seek that right away. Secondly, it says, avoid sexual immorality. Let's fight for each other's marriages. Let's fight for each other's relationships. Let's hold each other accountable. Let's ask a hard questions. Let's avoid sexual morality. Let's not compromise or justify it. Let's just put it right out there and say, let's not even go up to the edge of it. He's saying, avoid it. Don't even let it enter your mind or your heart or anything. Avoid sexual morality. Let's all make a commitment. Let's avoid that. That's what he's saying. Just avoid it. Thirdly, it says, not to live in unholy lives, ungodly lives. Don't give in to idolatry, what he was talking about here. And the thing that with Esau, let me give you a little context of Esau. Esau and Jacob are twin brothers, and Esau was born first, so in that culture, he had the birthright. And what that meant, he was a favorable position when it came to the inheritance, that he was the oldest, and no one could take that from him. That was his. Well, Esau was a hunter, and one day he went out hunting for a very long time, and he came back with nothing. And Jacob, his brother, was deceiver, said to Esau, I've got a meal prepared for you. Are you hungry? Would you like to eat? And of course, what would Esau say? Yes. And Jacob says, well, it's going to cost you. And Esau said, what is it going to cost me? Your birthright. Now, who in the world would give up their birthright for a meal, right? We, we say that. Who would do that? Well, Esau did. But before we condemn him, we need to understand that's happened thousands and thousands and thousands of times over the years. Well, people take that which is eternal, and they sacrifice it for the temporary. They do it all the time that which is eternal, which God promises, and they sacrifice to get that temporary satisfaction. Or they take that which is valuable, and they sacrifice it for a one-night stand. And that's what Esau did. That's what he was doing here. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Esau had another brother that maybe came up alongside him and says, Esau, before you do that, before you eat that meal, you need to understand that three or four hours from now, you're going to be hungry again for another meal, right? But you're never going to get your birthright back. 
It would have been wonderful if Jacob could have been that kind of brother, but he was just the opposite. He didn't. Listen, as we live in this body, in this community, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's sometimes we're going to make mistakes. And if I make a mistake and you see it, I hope you can come to me and you feel like you can say, Pastor, you know, I don't think you're doing this right or something. And hopefully you're open enough that someone could approach you to say that. Because none of us arrived here, right? None of us arrived. We're all under construction. God is still working in our lives, right? Amen? He's working in our lives. And there's going to be times that we're going to mess up. There's going to be times where we make mistakes in our life. There we are. And we desperately need each other in our lives. We desperately need that. And God will use sometimes people that come to us and help us, to restore us. Not to condemn us, but to restore us and help us. One of the things that I've been praying about over the last many, many months, God working in my life is, God, how do you want me to prepare the church for what's coming in the world? What, how do you want me to do that? See, with the lack of persecution, I believe, the church is a persecuted days because of the consumerism maybe of the American church culture we have and all the things that are going on where people have so much stuff has allowed us to behave ungodly, not according to the Bible. We don't believe that we need each other until a crisis hits. And I, and I believe the COVID-19 pandemic has even, even uh, made a bigger role in that, played a bigger role in that. When it's come, that it's isolated us and making us believe that we don't need each other, that I don't need other people, uh, that isn't necessary to meet together anymore, that we actually caught into that lie that it, we don't need to meet. Listen, we have to be better than that. We have to trust what God is saying and believe what he's saying here, that he's saying that we desperately need each other. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, it says, let us not give up meeting together, as some of the habit are doing. We're to be here as often as the doors are open. We're to try to be here and strive to be here every Sunday morning, like you go to your job or do anything else. We're to be here because that's where God wants us. It's not an option. Do you realize churches are supposed to be an option? I don't feel like it. I got something better to do. This is a priority. We reschedule in and we're here. We come. And even if you think to your mind, say, well, I don't really think I need to be here. God says you do. So who's right? God says you do. Maybe you don't think you should, but God says we do need to be here. Let's stop using the body or our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with the, the family of Jesus as something we just kind of put into our lives. We kind of put in every once in a while. Oh, I'll do it here and I'll do it there. I'll do it here. Let's recognize that we need each other. We need to be here. We need to be here on Sunday mornings, every Sunday morning, unless we're out of town or something, to be here to encourage others, to pray with others. To smile, put a smile on your face to others. To be that person right there for them, that they might see the, the love of Jesus in you. That we need each other, and they need you. Hopefully you realize that before it's too late. And I know I'm preaching many of you to the choir, but hopefully some that might hear it online, that we need to come back to church and be part of the body here. We desperately need this. We desperately need it. Even if you don't think you do, trust Jesus right now and say, I, I, I need to be here because God says it, and I need to be here. And God will convince us over time that we need to be here. That's why it's so important for small groups to take place. And we're going to start small groups in September. And Ed O'Grail is going to start here, I think, in the third week of uh, September. On Sunday, they meet once a month, Sunday after church in room 7. I'm going to start my small group back up. We're going to meet twice a month, starting, I think, in the third week of September. Uh, here at church, we're going to meet twice a month. So make sure you're part of those. Sign up. We're, as we need more, we're going to have more. But make sure you sign up there. We need each other. We need to be there. Keep each other accountable to grow together, to pray together, have that fellowship together. We need God, but we need each other. Listen, you and I can never become what God wants us to be without each other. You realize that? 
We can grow closer to God. But what God teaches us from this word, the Bible, is to minister to others. And we work out what God is teaching us by as we're serving and ministering to others. So if we're not doing that, if we're not meeting together in the body of Christ, we're missing out what God wants us to be, who he wants us to become. We're kind of, kind of, kind of uh, keeping us down from growing spiritually as God wants us to grow. Because God wants us to have that fellowship with him, but he also wants us to have it horizontally with others and to minister and be a part of ministry and serving him. And we do that as a body of Christ together. So be a part of it. We need to serve in a ministry. We need to have that community with others. We're rubbing shoulders and elbows with others. We need each other. Are you with me? Okay, are you with me? I didn't share all this to say all this. Are you with me? Amen? You're with me. We desperately, desperately need each other. Let's change what we have to do in our lives. Whatever you thought before, hopefully you're convinced by the Word of God that we need each other. We need to be here to come to a place we build and strive for peace and holiness in the body of Christ in the church. Amen? That we do that because we need each other. Let's all say that together. Hopefully it seeps in. But one, two, three. We need each other. And what that means is just not people. It's the body of Christ in your local church. You look around at the people here, you need each other. And some of those that are not here today, we need each other. We need to fellowship together. We need each other for encouragement to build and encourage one another, right? We need Jesus, but we need each other too. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we come and we praise you. We thank you so much, God, that of all that we have in Jesus. We thank you so much, Lord, that you teach us and you instruct us the, the right way to live. That, Lord, even if it's contrary to what we see in our culture today, that many think that we don't need to meet together anymore. We can do everything online and we don't have to come together. But the Bible says contrary to that that we need to meet together. That that online just is to give us the fellowship and the worship together as we need it. We need to hear each other's voices. We need to see each other. We need to pray together. We need to grow together. We need that fellowship. We need those conversations. We need the encouragement for others. We need to encourage others. We need to, need to see a smile on someone's face, hear their voice or whatever. We need it. God, we need you and we need each other. Help convince us of that today, Lord that we can never become all that you want us to be without that. That we need the fellowship and the worship of you, but we need the fellowship with others. And so, Lord, I pray that for each person here, Lord, that we realize that, that, Lord, that all of us would strive for, for peace and holiness with you. That, Lord, we'd all looked at that uh, my success in the Christian life to see others succeed in the Christian life, to see others come to know Jesus and walk with him. That my success is not walking over others and hurting others, but bringing as many as I can with me that they too may, may experience the blessings of Jesus, of knowing who he is and to walk with him in all the riches of his grace. The Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that you might use us to impact as many as people as possible with the blessings and the grace of Jesus. That many people that we know might enjoy Jesus the way that we long to enjoy you, to fellowship you and worship with you. That Lord, we be a place of holiness and peace in a place where people can serve and grow and, and love one another the way that the church that you died for on the cross, that we might be that. The church that you died for, where there's fellowship, there's joy, there's love, there's holiness, there's peace, there's forgiveness, there's grace, and there's mercy. And Lord, help us to be the church. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. Lord, we love you and we praise you. 
We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.